Hey, uh, that's fun, isn't it? I love uh, the joy of the Lord. I love uh, for us to be spontaneous and to, to laugh and to encourage one another. Having said that, uh, let me transition this morning to what we're going to talk about, and that is um, the subject of war. The subject of war. And I'm not talking about the war that might first have come into your, to your mind. Um, if you were to survey my grandparents' generation when I talked about the war, when I mentioned the war, they would probably have, they've seen a couple of wars, now deceased, but there would probably be one particular war that came to my grandparents' mind if you said, hey, we're in a war. For my parents' generation, it would probably be... Uh, Another war, likely the Vietnam War or more recent wars. If you were to survey this upcoming generation, I think, uh, and ask them, what, what, where's the war? They would be less specific because they've only known in their, life, in their lifetime kind of this global war. This war on terror, this war kind of off that's uh, less defined than previous wars of the past. But what we learn as we continue to journey today in 1 Peter is that we are in a war. And the war that we're in is both global, cosmic, if you will, but also intensely personal. And man, we have the joy of the Lord and we have one another as family, but we are engaged in a war. And it's a spiritual war, and it's a war of great cost, a war uh, with weapons of mass destruction, and a war that we need to be engaged in the fight. And that's what Peter warns us about in these two verses, just two verses that we're going to look at this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 2, it will be on the screen, but... Um, Follow along with me here. We'll read it. And like I said, just two verses and really uh, two primary points. And uh, then we will close by celebrating the table and responding uh, this morning. So 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Why don't we do this? Why don't you read along with me, okay, if you have the ESV in front of you or you're looking on the screen. Why don't you read along with me these two verses, okay? It starts this way. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here, uh, again, we see that as we've come through and we took a week off last week, we've, we've talked about how Peter is addressing believers in the first century that he calls exiles and strangers. And as exiles and strangers, they're the minority in the culture of the day. And Christians always, as followers, followers of Jesus, have been and will be minorities, strangers and exiles uh, in a world that's not their home. 
And as he has given us kind of our identity in uh, verses past, today we get a, a reminder of our identity, but we also get this solemn warning, this solemn charge to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then he goes on to say, these passions of the flesh wage war against our soul. And so there's actually, and we see it here in verses 11 and 12, there's a couple battlefronts of the war that we're involved in. And right here in verse 11, he talks about the passions of the flesh. But if you look through the New Testament, kind of a comprehensive teaching on this this war that we have, there's really three fronts or three battlefields of the war. And you might have heard it said like this, the war of the flesh, the world, and the devil. We war on three fronts, our flesh, the passions of the flesh, we might call that the inner war, but we also war against the forces of the world and the world's temptation, you might call that the outer war or the the outer battlefield, excuse me. So we have the inner battlefield, the outer battlefield, the, the world that is against us. And pulls against us. And then thirdly, we have what we might call today the invisible battle, or you might call it the spiritual battle. Okay? So the inner battle right here, verse 11, is the passions of the flesh, and that's prominent throughout the New Testament from not only Peter, but also Paul. And Jesus talks about the things that coming out of our heart that wage war against our soul and that man is not corrupt by what he eats, but by what's in his heart. It's that passion. So that's the inner war. But in verse 12, we also see a hint as to this outer battle, the battle with the world, because he says that you're going to have people speak against you as evildoers. So Peter's saying, look, the battle's not only within you, the battle is also outside of you and around you as the world will speak ill against you and uh, try to pull you into its cycle or pull you into its vortex, mold you into its uh, liking, so to speak. So the inner battle, the outer battle, and then finally the invisible battle and Peter gives us insight into this. If you flip over in your Bible to chapter 5, verse 8, you have this classic warning here about the invisible battle or the spiritual battle as he talks about this real entity, this real created being called the devil. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober, be sober-minded, excuse me, watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay? So you have this inner battle, this outer battle, and also this invisible battle that is against devil, the devil and the demons that have followed or fallen along with Satan. Okay? That we believe really exist. That he is out there him and his minions, him and his demons, seeking whom he may devour. Ephesians chapter 2, the first couple verses, gives us, again, this kind of threefold uh, battlefield. If you flip there with me quickly, Ephesians chapter 2, 
You see all three aspects of this battle there. Paul says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See it there? Where the battle rages? Among whom we... Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Okay, there he's repeating Paul's or Peter's language, excuse me. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath. So you see there in Ephesians 2 as well, you have the world, you have the principalities of the air, and you have the passions of of the flesh. But Peter, particularly uh, in verse 11, is drawing our attention to these passions of the flesh. This battle that rages inside each one of us, inside of me this morning, inside of you. And though we have trusted Christ, if I assume you've trusted Christ this morning, you have the Holy Spirit who indwells you, who empowers you, but you also have this sinful nature, sometimes called the flesh, sometimes translated as sinful nature, that still, though its power has been defeated, still influences us. We're saved, but we're not yet totally sanctified in our walk, in our perfection. So this battle rages, Galatians chapter 5, this battle between the flesh and the spirit rages within us, and Peter warns us about these passions of the flesh. And he actually gives us some examples of them over in chapter 4. So if you flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Do I have this on the slide? I think so, but I don't know if I have all three verses. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, okay? Yeah, let's just do 3 through 5. He gives us insight. He gives us some examples here pretty graphically. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And what is that? He says, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. There they are. At least a sampling of them. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They speak against you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So these passions of the flesh are these things. They're, they could be sensual. They could be sexual. They could be uh, desires, materialistic desires, but their passions that are born in us by nature and part of just how we're born. Since Adam and Eve, we're born with these passions and with this draw to what we know we shouldn't do, but yet it rages in us. And so even the hymn we sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love and chase after these passions that I have. And so the very charge for us this morning is, where is the battle raging for you? We're in a war, but where's the battlefield? What's the passion of the flesh waging, raging, excuse me, up in you this morning? 
or lately? Is it a passion of anger? Is it a passion of, of lust? Is it a passion of, of jealousy? Maybe a, maybe a spirit of, of bitterness or a spirit of divisiveness. Maybe it's just a, a passion of just discontentment. I just can never be satisfied. Well, Peter wants you to know it, and he wants you to name it. Why? So it won't destroy you. So it won't destroy me. He wants you to know that left unchecked, left without fight, without warring against these passions, our soul is in the middle of this ferocious fight for what we will love, for what we will cherish, for what we'll long for. And I don't feel like I give a lot of sermons like this often, and sometimes they can feel a kind of old school hellfire and brimstone and dire warning. But this is a day you can't read this and escape the fact that we're messed up and if we don't get a check on our passions and bring those sinful tendencies into the light of the truth, they'll take us down. They'll destroy our lives. They'll cost us our marriage. They'll cost us our testimony. And so the grace of God that I'm offering to each of us this morning, including myself, is just to probe and knock on our hearts to say, where are passions out of the line? Where does a battle rage that if not attended to will be more costly than we could ever imagine? And let me be blunt this morning, too, because I spend time regularly with men who have passions raging within us, some, some because our passions are in cahoots with the pull of the world, and the devil would want nothing more than to destroy our families and our marriages by pornography and lust and all things evil, good things corrupted evil, and so I throw this out here as the grace of God to say, are you fighting the battle in the light, or are you hiding from the light your battle? As brothers and sisters, we all have a fight. We all have passions of the flesh, and I beg you this morning, maybe this is the grace of God for you this morning, that there is something raging inside of you, or maybe it's not even raging it's just poking its head, you know, every once in a while or, or more intentionally, more prominently that you need not just to stuff it and hide it, but you need to confess it, share it with a brother, but make some plan, some step today to say, I got to get this in check. 
I got to bring this into the light. I got to bring this under the power and the influence of Holy Spirit, okay? Because the battle that rages is a battle not for any type of earthly acclaim, not any type of sporting battle, weird UFC kind of fight, but the battle that rages is a battle for our hearts, for our souls. And Jesus said that he comes to give life and life abundantly, but the enemy, his enemy and our enemy comes, why? To steal, kill, and destroy. And I'm not here this morning to beat down any of us. I'm here to offer you a plate, uh, a, a table of grace to say God sees, God knows, and he wants me to bring things into the light for healing. So I don't know what it is that rages within you, but I know that Jesus would want you not to hide that, but to, to confess it, to perhaps seek counsel, and to shine the light on it so that it, does, so that it doesn't grow in the darkness, okay? Please. Verse 12, he goes on, because the war that rages within us directly impacts our witness. What happens in our soul and how we conduct our lives impacts our witness in the world. So verse 12, right after giving us this solemn charge, in verse 12 he says, now he's talked about our soul, now he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So our soul and our conduct and our good deeds, all of these uh, play into this influence and this witness that we have in our world. So just because we have these sinful passions, the prescription is not uh, go off and hide and be in a monastery for months or years and fight your passions. Go be away from the world. But he says, live among, stay among the world. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Don't do the dishonorable thing. Don't let your dishonorable passions rage, but keep your conduct among the Gentiles in, in the world, not withdrawn. Keep your conduct honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is he saying here? He's like, that our lives not be so disqualified by sin, but be so beautiful in terms of an example that when people see our lives, they would say there's something different there. In the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the, the words of Jesus that Peter has in mind, I think, as he writes verse 12. That I don't sin unto myself, I, I, I don't fight these passions unto myself, but my world, my soul directly affects the people that I live and work and surround myself with. My life displays Christ or not. 
even by the way I, I deal with the passions, my life displays, the gospel displays who Christ is by my good deeds. My good deeds set the stage for me to share the good news. My life is a platform by which God can use to proclaim the gospel. We saw uh, up above in verse 9, our purpose, we looked at this a few weeks ago, verse 9, he says, we are a people for his own possession. Why? That our lips, that our lips may pro- proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see here between verses 9 and verse 12, a twofold purpose for our lives as as believers, as followers of Jesus. Our lips are to proclaim the excellencies of God, and our lives, verse 12, are supposed to get the attention positively of the people around us, so when they come to us accusing us of evil, now why would they accuse the people in Peter's day of being evildoers? I thought they're, they're following Jesus. How could they possibly be accused of doing evil? Well, in the first century, these Christians even were accused of of evil. Why? Because they wouldn't bow down. They wouldn't worship to all the pagan Roman deities. So you're not worshiping our gods, our cultural gods, so you're evil. By their noncompliance, they were described as evil among the majority culture. They wouldn't go to the Colosseum. They wouldn't watch some of these violent things where people were shredded by lions as people watched and cheered on, kind of, you know, the old, you know, now we have UFC. Sorry to pounce on UFC this morning. Back then, they just put people in the Colosseum and watched lions rip them to shreds. Now, we just beat people to a pulp. Um, but they didn't participate in that. And they also had these, these other kind of secret meetings where they would have these private ceremonies where they celebrated blood and the body of Jesus. And they, did, they thought, you know, that's weird. Those Christians, they're cannibals or something. They're talking about the blood of, of Jesus. So they were maligned. They were accused of doing evil even in their quest to be good people. So according to verse 12... What is it? Is it our, that our lives, if, if we're followers of Jesus, that our lives will gain the honor of the watching world or our lives will draw attack from the watching world? They'll call us evildoers. What is it? Yes, right? The answer is yes. According to verse 12, if we're, if we're living faithfully for Jesus, we will both live honorably. We, we, will, we will live in a way that, that even the pagan world said that they're an honorable people. But if we're also faithful to Christ, faithful enough, we'll also be accused of doing evil by our good. So the, the tension here that we walk is the same tension that, that Jesus walked is that Jesus' life was honorable. It drew the attention of, of sinners and tax collectors and even some religious people. They, they thought, no one is like Jesus. And yet, on the other hand, they called him evil. They tried to stone him. They crucified him. Not for being a good guy, but for promoting and proclaiming what they thought was evil. If we're faithful Christians... We'll be both honored by our neighbors as well as scorned by our neighbors. If you're only scorned by your neighbors, you might have drifted off into fundamentalism where you're just shaking your fist at the world and calling everything evil. 
If you're only honored by your neighbors, you may have drifted off just into nice, nicism, liberalism, spread the love, do the justice, the world will promote us, the world will like us if we just feed all the hungry people and, and do good. Well, the scriptures say that we will be honored and we will also be maligned. Both. Both. Because we follow a Savior who was unlike any other, honored, holy, and yet spoken of as blasphemer. Billy Graham, who was quite honored in his day, quite reputable, said this. Billy Graham said, Beware, if the world has nothing to say against you, beware lest Christ have nothing to say for you. If the world has nothing to say against you, beware lest Christ have nothing to say for you. Brothers and sisters, we're living in a day and an age where we have to be light, where we have to be people of love and compassion. We must be to honor the following of Jesus. And yet don't forget, we're sojourners and exiles, and we will be maligned. We will be misunderstood. We will be called evil when we attempt holy Christ-like things. So how are you going to survive? How are you going to walk that line? How are you going to be encouraged and motivated to say no to the passions and live a life that brings the disdain of perhaps coworkers or friends where you feel like an outcast? We'll go back to some of the verse, words of the verse. Verse 11, look at how he started again. Let me remind us of this refrain throughout this letter. How does he address these brothers and sisters? He calls them the beloved. If you are <clears throat> going to fight temptation, if you're going to be able to stand against the disdain of the world, you must not just know but sense in your heart that you are the beloved. Now, is Peter saying you're the beloved because, hey, I'm Peter and I love you? Or is, is Peter saying you're the beloved of God? Again, yes. He's saying you are the beloved of God. Remember, chapter 1, verse 1, he called them the elect exiles. You are the loved of God. Now, if you're going to walk this, this line, then you and I have to know that we are the beloved of Jesus. We may be the outcast of the world, but we're in the family of Jesus. We are his beloved. So we can take the, the scolding and the criticism of the world because we have the smile of God. Beloved is our identity. Beloved shapes our identity and, and gives us our value and our worth. But the second two descriptors, sojourner and exiles, shaped our expectations. Because exiles and sojourners don't expect to have the majority opinion. They don't expect to be esteemed in the world. And that's what Peter's been setting us up in this whole letter. You are loved, that's your identity, 
But don't expect an easy road. Don't let your expectations be a cakewalk or a, a cruise lush and plush with Jesus. Expect to be an exile, a wanderer, a sojourner. But take heart because you're the loved of God. And if you're the loved of God, you can withstand the hatred of friends, family, or anyone in the world. I want to ask you to close your eyes and I want to give you a moment to do business with the Lord. Maybe um, as we've looked at this passage, the Holy Spirit has put upon your heart something that you need to take before the Lord or a step that you need to take this morning to bring something to the light. And I want to ask you, what step do you need to take today to fight the passions of the flesh? What is the Holy Spirit nudging you to do this morning in light of these truths? We're going to have some folks available for prayer. You can find my email on our website. You can find me afterwards, one of our elders. Maybe you need to make a commitment right now that you're going to make a phone call this week, that you're going to make an appointment this week, that you're going to meet with a brother or sister and you're going to confess a struggle or a passion that's that's really raging that you're concerned about and you want to bring under wraps. Whatever it is that the Spirit would want you to do, I invite you to commit to that and be obedient to that this morning or in the next 24, 48 hours. Father God, we come to you this morning and we thank you so much that uh, though a war rages within us, we know that in some ways that's a sign of your love, that we belong to you, that we have this fight against the passions that rage within us. And we thank you, God, that you have defeated sin and the evil one and death that plagues us. Lord, I pray for each person here that we would respond to your word this morning in a way that we need to, in a way that will help us live lives that are honorable. In the name of Jesus, we pray.